Hello, and welcome to your path to success with Ruth Kearns Volman. Today's episode is a thought-provoking conversation with strategic consultant and board chair, Jill Whitty Collins, about strengths-based leadership, the confidence competence equation, and the importance of including your boss in your team. She shares very practical learning from her leadership journey through the ranks of consumer giant P&G up to senior vice president, and what drove her to become a gender equality warrior and write her book, Why Men Win at Work. Listen on to be encouraged and inspired on your leadership journey. My guest today is Jill Whitty Collins. Jill is a published author of the book, Why Men Win at Work, and she describes herself as a gender equality warrior. She is a consultant and expert in business and brand building following a successful 26 year career at P&G, where she was a senior vice president for beauty care in the EMEA region. Jill, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ruth. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, before we dive into talking about work and career, it's so tempting to do that, but I want to ask you about one of your passions, which is sport. Tell us what is your favourite sport, both to participate in and to watch, and why? So I'll start with my favourite sport to watch, which is absolutely football. I am a massive football fan. Well, specifically, I'm a massive Liverpool fan. I'm not even that fussed with the national team, to be honest. I come from a, a, a Scouse family. My dad's a Liverpool fan. He made me a Liverpool fan from birth. So love, love watching them. To play, um, it was always, I have actually given up now, but it was always netball. Um, I'm a huge netball fan. I think it's a fantastic um, sport for girls. Um, And I played it, yeah, from the age of seven till the age of 40 something. Um, And yeah, love it. Love it. Too old now, I think, but. (laughs) <laughs> too tired. Never too too tired. Well. Not too old, too tired. <laughs> what did you enjoy about sport when you played netball? I I did really love the competition. Honestly, for me, um, in my later years of playing in Geneva, um, we actually would do, um, we play in the practice sessions. We actually would often not keep score. And it was more of a, you know, practicing with skills and running around. And I hated that. I absolutely hated that. Um, And for me, that was, it was all a bit pointless because I thought, you know what, if I'm just exercising, I can exercise a lot more efficiently by going for a run. Um, So the purpose of this is the competition. The purpose is to try to win. Don't get me wrong. I didn't care if I didn't win. It wasn't that, but I absolutely cared about knowing what the score was and how we were doing. Mm. and whether we needed to do better Mm. um and yeah really I I just I just loved that and I I loved the teamwork that went in you know when you were winning when you were playing well but also when you weren't and and how you had to get that back as a team Mm. fantastic yeah it's an interesting structure isn't it how we give ourselves structure to know how well we're doing and you know what is what is the goal we're yes, exactly. We need that, don't we? We all need to know how we're doing. Mm. Um, I think that's really important in life, and it's absolutely okay if we're not if we're not doing brilliantly and we're not doing perfectly. And you know what? We've scored no goals yet. Mm. Um, it's absolutely okay, but we have to know so that we know what to do. 
Um, exactly. And we may come back to that point later because I think it's a great leadership point. But I want to ask you a little bit about your career now. Um, because from the outside, you look like you've had what was quite a traditional career in PNG, very successful career. You rose through the ranks rapidly to senior vice president. What might it surprise people to know about your career who don't know you so well? I think one of the things that surprised people who don't know me is that I had my son when I was at university. So my son was born at the end of my second year at Cambridge. Um, and I always laugh still remembering it because I, my baby bump was too big to fit in the lecture hall tables. So they had to put me in a special room uh, to sit my exams. Um, but what that meant was that when I started at PNG as a, a 22 year old graduate, I started with a, a, a child who was, you know, 18 months old. Um, and that obviously made me a complete freak versus everybody else. I mean, clearly nobody else, nobody else was in an, um, a, a, you know, a marriage. Nobody else was anywhere near having children, even the women at the more senior levels, and there weren't many of them, but even um, the women at the director levels. Um, I happen to know they did have kids, but there was absolutely no sign of them. They were completely hidden from, from all view. And I had to, I mean, I started my career um, and I had to drop my son at nursery before work and pick him up when it closed. So in, in the context of a career like that, that was quite a short day, actually. That was really a, a nine till 5.30 day. And all of the, you know, my friends around me who'd started at the same time, you know, they were, they were working far too long days I think but they were working you know they were coming in some of them coming in at seven some of them leaving at 11 um and I was a little concerned I was looking around thinking how can I possibly compete with this how can I possibly compete with these extra hours every day that I just can't do and and I just said to myself well, you, you're gonna have to do your best you're gonna have to prioritize do what you can do in the time that you have um and and hope it's enough I'm curious for you, because obviously you learned a lot early on about discipline, as you say, and priority setting. Um, what things came naturally to you in business and what things did you have to adapt to and, and grow in? So I know now what came naturally to me in StrengthsFinder terms, because like you, Ruth, I'm a massive fan of StrengthsFinder and I've done that now. And I hadn't when I was younger but I can see now it was always there in my top five I have strategic communication command and responsibility I also have connectedness by the way that's a whole other conversation <laughs> um, but those those four you know it's an interesting combination but it it, it is a great combination they're all great combinations aren't they but it was a great combination for the kind of job that that I had, which was, you know, marketing brands um, and leading teams. Um, so strategic thinking is, is absolutely just the easiest thing in the world for me to the point that for many, many years, I didn't realize that not everybody thought like that. Mm. Um, and yeah, taking responsibility. So, you know, I'm, I'm a great employee in many ways, because if you give me, if I say I will do something, 
it will be done. It mm. just will. You know, you don't have to chase me. You don't have to follow up. Um, I absolutely feel an enormous sense of responsibility and commitment for something that I, I've said that I'll do. Um, and I think looking back, the thing that never, ever came easily to me was the the politics, really. And the, well, basically um, having a boss. I was never good at having a boss. That's the command. I was never good at that. And I think the combination of that command and also that responsibility meant that I, I think it always annoyed me quite a lot to have a boss. I had some fantastic bosses, but I think as I got also as I got more senior and I got more experienced, um, it became harder and harder for me to have a boss. And I, um, I really struggled for many years with what I now call the umbrella theory. I hadn't coined it then, but that whole thing about we are basically working under our umbrellas as far as our bosses are concerned all they can see is the top of our umbrellas they don't know how fantastic the work we're doing under that umbrella is mm. um and I I wasn't really aware of that for 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 many years and I wasn't aware that my bosses did not know of all the strategic leadership um and responsibility that was going on under this umbrella and that you know, I was fantastic because I didn't really spend any time at all putting my umbrella aside and letting them in. I got a little bit more savvy about it. I don't think I was ever really good at that. And it's one of the things I really coach women on is just be savvy about this because it's the way the world works. You have to be visible. Your work has to be visible. Doesn't matter how great you are. If you're under your umbrella, you're going to get very frustrated when other people get rewarded for their work just because it's more seen mm. so when you say you're not very good at having a boss and managing the politics you know it sounds like you're talking about managing up so letting them know what you're doing but also including them at strategic points yes yeah. yes absolutely and you know one of my favorite stories is um and this is really when I learned the umbrella theory was when I was the um, marketing director for the beauty business in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I was, um, you know, one of the directors reporting to our general manager. And there were obviously lots of different directors running lots of different businesses. And I used to really pride myself on the fact that I, I could manage it myself. For me, at that point, success was, I don't have to bother my boss. I can manage it. Um, and in the meantime, I saw all the other directors constantly at my boss's door with these crises that they were having. And I was sitting there smugly thinking, well, that doesn't sound like a crisis to me. I've managed 10 of those already this week. I thought, oh, poor them. Um, and I thought I was doing my boss a massive favor by never mm-hmm. having to bother him gets to the end of the year and it's review time. And I have, I mean, you know, double digit growth. I have the best business indexes across the business by a long way. Mm. But guess who doesn't get the top rating? And guess who doesn't get rewarded for those results? Mm. Um, And meanwhile, these men who had delivered declining businesses or very, very slightly growing businesses, got the stronger ratings 
Mm. And I didn't understand it. And, you know, I spoke to, to my boss and he's still a great friend of mine. And he said, well, your, your business must have been easy. Your results must have been easy to get because I never saw you. You never came for help. You never asked me for input. Mm. So it must have been easy. Whereas these guys who look at the crisis they've been dealing with. That Ruth is when I learned about the umbrella thing. <laughs> yeah, that's so powerful, isn't it? Well, and so what did you change as a result of that? I mean, I don't think I ever became good at it. And I think, um, you know, it was ultimately limiting for me. But I absolutely realised then that, you know, every woman I ever coached or mentored has said to me, um, my work should speak for itself. Let me get on with my job. I don't have time for all this. My work should speak for itself. Um, and yes, realizing that no, your work doesn't speak for yourself. It is itself. You have to be visible. Your work has to be visible. So I did get a bit better at that. And I, it, it was really just the, for me, the biggest thing was just being savvy and saying, you know, I can do with this what I will but I need to accept the consequences. This is the way the world works. So if I don't do a better job of making my work and myself visible, I need to accept the consequences of that, which are that I won't be seen and I won't be rewarded and that men, other men, um, will get the job that I want, the promotion I want, they'll be valued more than me. So I got, I got better. I got better just by being aware I, I wouldn't say that I was ever a natural. And I do I really encourage women to women to just be aware of this from a really young age and just get comfortable with it. You know, a lot of women see networking and self-marketing as dirty words. And, and I think women really have to get over that because they're just going to be frustrated. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is true. I'm curious about one thing. I'm curious about how you see the link between that and what you talk about in your book as this confidence competence equation, because, you know, clearly the, the fact is that there are lots of competent women out there who are not getting roles that men get in their place. And part of it is this fact that they're just getting on with it. And part of it is that they don't come across as confident I say that because I'm not always sure whether it is actual confidence or whether it's that they don't, um, mm. you know, we don't show the right signs that we are confident in what we're doing. Yeah. And for me, that seems to be a bit of a contradiction between going to your boss and calling crisis. There must be some way that men do it that makes them look good and the crisis look bad. Or, what, you know, how does that work? Oh, so many questions in there. I think... The umbrella theory is absolutely one of the things I want women to be aware of. And the competence versus confidence equation is another. And to be aware of them, not in a this is something for me to moan about way, um, but in a this is just the way world, the world works. And I think confidence, you know, we all love confidence, Ruth, right? We all love confident people. It's very, very attractive when somebody's confident. We, if they're confident, yeah, exactly. We trust them. We want to give them work. Um, if they're confident in themselves, we are confident in them. So again, confidence, like marketing and self-marketing and networks, not a dirty word at all. It, it's a, it's a human reality. 
And I think the problem, the problem, though, is that for lots and lots of reasons, women are generally less confident than men. And they genuinely are generally less confident. They feel less confident. And that goes back to all sorts of things that start in childhood and at school. Um, And so it's a big problem because as we're judging people and we're judging, you know, whether or not we want to give them a job or give them work, um, we're often seduced by the, the confidence. And, and you know, I, I, I say we don't look behind the confident curtain to the competence behind. And we can miss some extremely competent women um, because they are not, for whatever reason, projecting that competence confidently or even at all they don't even have the confidence sometimes to project it at all and meanwhile all we're seeing and hearing is the confidence and so we 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 choose sometimes wrongly we choose confidence over competence and you know we certainly see that in some of the people we choose to lead our countries for example um in some cases um and i think your question about how does this work then um, how can it be that these men were calling crises and yet they, they somehow still came over as confident? And I think when we ask that question, it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's indicative, isn't it? The question, um, the lack of confidence that we sometimes have in being imperfect. So I think for most men, they don't see, they absolutely see no correlation between being confident in yourself and being capable and recognizing a crisis and calling it out because they absolutely feel more generally than women that it is just normal and natural to be imperfect, to not have the answers to everything, to to say, I need help here. They see that as absolutely okay and good even. And by the way, they're right because their bosses also like that because their bosses like to be included in the problem and they like to give their wisdom and their help. They like to feel part of the solution. They feel more ownership when the results come in. So I have to say on some things, I I, I think men have got it right. And I think their knowledge that confidence is not about being perfect. Confidence is, is, you can be absolutely confident in yourself without being complete and perfect. And in fact, actually, you have to be, you must be because perfection doesn't exist. So Mm. if women wait to feel perfect and complete before they feel confident, they will never feel confident Mm. and they'll never then be able to project confidence and they'll always suffer from being missed um, when, you know, in the context of others who are more confident but not necessarily more competent. Yeah. One thing that resonated with me was this often, I think, uh, for women or for certain people, going to ask for help is an admission of failure. Um, and that is something we have to get over, uh, that asking for help is actually a positive thing. Also from a leadership perspective, because if I'm trying to do it on my own, I'm not actually leading. And that includes leading leading up. Um, and it made me think of a funny comment someone made about 
a particular president in P&G that he was the best ever assistant brand manager because he loved getting into the details. So if you could take him one of your little problems to solve, he would be absolutely very excited. Um, and that's the insight, isn't it? We all like to get involved in a project. And, and that's what, you know, by asking for help, whether it be from the people working for us or from our manager, we're, we're bringing people along with us, in fact. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you've reminded me of something that um, the wonderful Melanie Healy, who was um, my president when I was um, director on the phone care business, the Always and Tampax business, and, uh, you know, a great mentor of mine. And she um, she gave me feedback um, at the end at the end of one year. We were talking, you know, we were talking about the next level and moving to the general manager um, level and what it would take and this was one of the pieces of feedback she gave me was Jill remember I'm on your team too your team is not just your peers and the people who work for you I'm on your team too I also want to be part Mm. of solving the problem and helping you know helping with the solution um and therefore part of the results that we deliver together and and that was a quite a penny drop moment for me because I don't think I thought about it before and I think that was exactly what happened in my UK experience yeah my fellow marketing directors had made my boss feel part of the team part of the solution and I had not and there is the you know where, as you say, we're all human beings. We're not bosses or reports. Right. We're human beings. And we have to remember that every day in the workplace. Yeah. We're all human beings. And it's interesting that that is the flip side of your strength of command and of being taking responsibility is that you can take responsibility and you have to remember to include other people. And for all of us, we have to be aware that if we, you know, I always not always, but I play with this with my clients a lot, is that we our strengths can also be things which can lead us down if we go too far yes. in the direction um, of, a, of a downside of our strengths. So, yeah. Absolutely. There are always, there are always the, the flip side, the flip sides, aren't there, of the strengths. And, you know, I, I mentioned that connectedness is my, is, is my fifth top five um, in strengths finder. And I, I think it's taken me many years to understand my connectedness. I think I used to leave my connectedness aside when it came to my bosses. I, I think I absolutely had that connectedness and that, you know, real belief in, um, in people and, and in connecting with people, um, with my peers and with my reports. And somehow I switched it off with my managers for many years. I think it's one thing I would definitely do differently if I had my time again was is, is to really think about that connectedness with everybody you work with, no matter what level they are. I think connectedness, if I understand it correctly, is also about seeing a bigger picture of the importance of all things coming together. And I see that a bit in the work that you're doing now on gender equality. And because I want to talk about that a bit, I see you standing up and saying, this is an important issue that we, uh, everyone needs to recognize and do something about at our level. At what point did you 
decide you were going to go after that? It was relatively, relatively recently. Um, actually, I was, it was not something that was top of mind for me for many years. Um, gender inequality. Um, I, I laugh and say I used to be, I'm ashamed to say, one of those women who didn't really prioritise it. I, I was aware of it, obviously, but because frankly, for a very long time, it didn't really get in my way or in the way of my career. Um, it just wasn't wasn't my priority. So it was it was really only at senior vice president level that I I started to truly understand it. And that was when I entered a male dominant environment and a male dominant culture for the first time in my career, in my life, actually. And um, it was literally the first time that I, I looked around a room, a meeting room and saw 80 percent plus men um, and quickly realized what that does um, and what that culture does and what it's like to be a minority in a dominant culture yeah. and how that impacts um how that impacts you, how that impacts how you're perceived, how you're listened to. Um, but importantly, because, you know, I always say this isn't about me. Hey, do you know what? I'm fine. I, I'm life. You know, I'll take it. I'll take I'll take the life that I've well, had. You, you've got to senior vice president without really having an issue, whereas I suspect. Yeah, so I don't, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I'm in the grand scheme of things. I, I'm, I, I'm OK, but I, I saw it impacting the women around me I saw them shrinking in that culture versus the women that I knew um, they were outside that culture in a more balanced culture mm -hmm. and so that triggered um, me really I, I became fascinated by it I became absolutely fascinated by what is this um, and why is this happening so I read um lots of books, lots of articles. And the more I read, the more I realized the extent of it, that it, it, it wasn't about me, it wasn't about the women around me. It, it absolutely was not about PNG. This was happening to women everywhere, every company, every country, every organization. And that, yeah, I mean, I, I remember initially just being so shocked to look at the data and to see every walk of life, business, sport, politics, whatever, leadership level positions, 90% plus men. Mm. Um, you know, women are only 7% of CEOs. They're only 9% of heads of state. They're only 25% of parliamentary seats worldwide. I mean, I could go on. And I actually became more and more livid about it actually and thought this is this is not right this is not this is not healthy this it cannot be good and you know obviously there's also the data that if you're a business or an organization and you have gender equality up to the top levels you perform better you deliver better results so I just became more and more livid and more and more passionate and I made the promise that when I left PNG the first thing I would do would be to write a book about this and about what I'd learned and importantly to talk about why it happens. So not just the 
data, you know, anyone can talk about the data, but beneath that, why does this happen when we know that women are 50% of the population? We know that women have equal intelligence, equal competence. We know they even have equal leadership ability. Mm. So why does this happen? That was what really interested me. And then, you know, I believe, um, as I know you do, um, from our, you know, work together, you have to understand the why before you can find the solution. And so um, really important to me to write about why it happens, really, and then to write something very constructive and positive and action focused about what do we do about it. I see a lot of things written about we don't need to fix women and we, you know, it's about the organizations that are the problem. And and I see it personally as a little bit more complex than that. Um, I mean, I don't think we need to fix women, but I think that there is, there are real challenges that women face. They're facing now and we can't wait to fix the organizations to support them in that. Um, and that those women are part of the solution to the organizations. And I think at the same time, we need to fix organizations. So I see it as a kind of a top, top down and bottom up, if you like. What for you are the key things that we should be doing, all of us? So you're absolutely right. It's all of us, right? And I think that, as with all things, there's been a pendulum on this, right? It sort of started out with, hey, women, here's all the things you need to do and you need to dress like this and talk like this and mm-hmm. um, not do this. Um, and then the pendulum's kind of swung to, it's not about fixing women, it's all about, you know, all these middle-aged white men need to do all of these things to fix the workplace. And you're so right, it's, it's, it's all of the above. Um, there are so many things that we do need, we do need men to do. Um, men are, as we've said, they've got 90% plus of the leadership positions in business in the world. So if men don't get on board with this and contribute to fixing it, women will never make any progress. We can sit around and talk about this as much as we like. So we absolutely do need that. And also, as we've talked, there are some things that I think women can do. And I'm not asking women to change one of the biggest keys, I think, to women showing up confidently in their workplace is actually going right, right back down inside to themselves, to their own strengths and bringing themselves and those strengths to their work. So it's not about women changing, but I do think it's about um women being savvy about some things that are human realities and always will be and have nothing sinister about them. Things like it is a human truth that people give jobs to people who are going to be working with them that they know and they trust. And so making yourself known and visible to that person is is just a human, you know, it's a human reality that you need to do that. And um, realities like confidence is something we all love and we trust confident people. So we as women need to find our confidence. It's not about, it's not about faking confidence. It's Mm -hmm. not about faux confidence. 
this is about really fight. I believe, I absolutely believe that everybody has confidence inside them. Everybody, deep, deep down, when you peel down the onion, is confident about some things. And I think it's really about investing the time in what are my strengths? What are my superpowers? These are the things, you know, you can't touch me on these. Even if you tell me you don't think I'm good at these, I know that I am bringing that, you know, finding that confident core and bringing that. So, 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 yes. There are things women need to do. I think they absolutely need to be aware of the issue from a young age and not be not be blindsided by it when it happens because it will happen. I can promise every woman out there, it may not have happened to you yet, but if you pursue a career for long enough and to a senior enough level, you will see it. So be ready and be prepared. And just being aware of things like the umbrella theory um, and things like, you know, how do I, from a really young age, find my confident core? There are things, obviously, that we need managers to do. We need managers to be aware of all of these things. Um, be aware of, you know, women will generally have different attitudes and do some things differently from men. Do not, do not sit around waiting for women to turn into men. Pay gap, for example. You know, don't sit around waiting for the woman to learn to come and ask for a salary increase like a man. She may never do it. You should still pay her the same for the same work. That's just right. You know, yeah. lots of things. How we recruit things managers need, need to do to make sure that, that the way that they're recruiting and the way that they're selecting candidates is equally appealing to women and that they are also seeing behind that confident curtain and seeing the competence beneath and then men you know men need to get this they need to invest in understanding the issue understanding why it's important not because it's a charity not because it's about being nice to women but because it's an opportunity to make a better stronger business and to make a better stronger society to have better, stronger relationships, by the way, simply to make a better, stronger world. They need to get it and they need to start taking action by understanding what causes it, becoming more conscious of their own contribution to it, even if, as is true in most cases, uh, they are good, decent men with great intentions. And, you know, I always say, I don't believe men wake up in the morning and jump out of bed and say, how can I build the patriarchy today and destroy as many women's careers as possible? I really don't think most men do that. And yet they are all still contributing unintentionally to this. And they need to understand that. And then they need to get some mechanisms in place to catch themselves. And I would say, you know, all men, just like I say to all women, don't have feminist phobia. There's no need for it. You should, you're a woman. You should proudly um, say that you're a feminist and you absolutely believe uh, that women should have equal rights and equal opportunities and equal treatment. I say to men, be a feminist. Be proud to say it. Be proud to say you believe in this. And speak, you know, speak up for women and speak up for gender equality because frankly, it is. It's so powerful. Uh, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, when a woman is in a male dominant culture and she speaks up 
for gender equality, that doesn't always go well because she looks like part of the problem. When a man in a male dominant culture speaks up for this, it is one of the most powerful, powerful things that uh, can happen. Agree. And what we both believe in is that we're talking today about gender equality, but the reality is that we believe that all organizations are going to be stronger when they are diverse and they represent, you know, in the case of a company like PG, their customers or, you know, uh, the broader society. So the principle of just being aware of our biases and doing something to counteract that is is so important um whether we're a man or a woman or you know whatever um if we're in a dominant culture we need to be aware that this is not easy uh for other people it's so true and you know one of the big thing i say to to managers is you know there's a simple thing you can do it's every time you walk walk into a room in a world where we have real meetings or look at the zoom call and you know look at all those faces and get into the habit of asking yourself, do I have a dominant culture here in any form? Do I have a dominant culture, whether that's a dominant male culture or a dominant white culture or whatever form of dominant culture? And if I do, I I am going to set off the alarm bell and I'm going to intervene because I understand that uh, this lack of diversity it's it's not because it's a bad thing it's a, it, it's a moral thing for me that's you know that that's not the reason to do this um because i don't believe that fundamentally that's what will lead to sustainable interventions from companies i think what will lead to sustainable sustainable interventions for companies is that understanding that this will bring them a better business better results and it's to your point ruth it's obvious. Isn't this obvious? I don't understand why people don't get it. If you have a room or a meeting or a discussion and you don't have diversity in the room, you will not have diversity in the thinking, in the ideas, in the inputs. You will not have diversity in the discussion and you will miss things. You will miss inputs because you've got a dominant culture and you're largely only hearing their view of the world and their view of the issue. Mm. And you will therefore make a poor or at least an incomplete decision. And you will come back later and you will wonder how on earth you could have missed something. And it and not missing it really would have been as easy as having a diverse representation in the room in the first place yeah so as we have to come to a close tell us about how we can find your book so there yes why men why men win at work and how we can make inequality history because that's the important thing it is absolutely about the why it happens and why it's important but it, it ends with a um Huge to-do list for everybody on how we fix this because, you know, I deeply, deeply believe we need to and I, and I think we need to stop being so patient and polite about this. Um, so, yes, it is um, available various, various places. Um, 
books that Cetra are doing special offer right now. So I totally recommend them and they do ship worldwide as well. Mm. But you can get it from any, basically any UK retailer. Um, we're not out in translation yet, but hopefully that is coming. Well, great. Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation and uh, seeing us make some dents in this issue <laughs> in the Absolutely. future. Absolutely. I hope we really need to. You know, I always say I won't stop till equality. And I'm not sure we're going to see it um, in my time on the earth, but I, I hope we can get a lot closer to it. <laughs> And that's why I think that you and I both believe in in kind of mentoring and sponsoring the next generation because um, it's not about me and you from my perspective. It's about the future. Absolutely. We really need to, I think we really, really owe it to our daughters and granddaughters to not send them into this workplace and these cultures. Hmm. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to talk with you. What I loved most about talking to Jill and reading her book is that she really doesn't pull any punches. I didn't always find it comfortable and I don't always agree with her 100%, but by naming things like the umbrella effect, by naming things like the confidence competence equation, and by putting the data about gender inequality transparently on the table, she has challenged me to question what I'm willing to do to make gender inequality history in order to make the world a better place. Perhaps she's challenged you too, and if so, I encourage you to take the time to decide what will you do in this area. For me, it starts with choosing to call out inequality when I see it and to help to put it right But it also includes ensuring that I am showing up boldly and authentically as a woman leader and that I'm coaching others to lead from what Jill calls your confident core. That's why I've been working on creating a program called Lead From Your Core, which I'll be sharing more about in future episodes. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more about the Clifton Strengths tool, which Jill mentioned, and which she and I both work with, you can go to the Gallup website, gallup.com forward slash Clifton Strengths. Gallup is G-A-L-L-U-P, gallup.com forward slash Clifton Strengths. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to sharing more encouraging leadership journeys with you soon.